morning, everybody, and good morning to those of you who are watching online. Uh, if you are, like, watching the Vikings game during my sermon <laughs> or checking the score, uh, don't give away with your face what's happening. Uh, I'm probably not going to get to watch it till about four or five. I do not want to know. All right? Notice I didn't tell you don't watch it while I'm preaching. <laughs> All right, yeah, so for those of you who don't follow football at all, they're playing in London, and so the game started at 8.30 this morning, so anyways, interesting. All right, so uh, we uh, like to say around here that understanding the Bible and your place in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery, so we jump into the Bible every week, and we learn from it. And I invite you to take your Bibles out. If you don't have one with you, those of you who are here, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and... Turn to the first page. We're continuing our series on the first page on Genesis chapter 1. It'll take us up till Advent. Advent, we'll have an Advent series, and then we'll pick up sometime in January. We'll pick this up again. It's an immersive series on the first chapter uh, and into a little bit into the second chapter of Genesis. And it's an experiment because of how immersive it is. It's, it's an experiment. But the first page of the Bible introduces almost every major theme in the Bible, and it does in such a spectacular way that uh, we, um, it deserves this kind of immersive treatment. I mean, it just, it talks about every theme. It's going to give us a lot of opportunities to talk about so many things that are so absolutely important. And today and for the next four weeks, we're looking at the second word on the first page. Now, this sounds a little ridiculous, uh, but by looking at the first word, the first word occurs 35 times. The second word occurs 35 times in, on the first page. So uh, we'll be looking at a lot of the first page by looking at just the, the second word. The, the second word is God. In our, in our translation, it's not the second word, but in the Hebrew Bible, it is the second word. In the beginning is one word. And so God is the subject of the first page, and we learn a lot about God on the first page of his story. So later in the page, we are introduced, humanity is introduced. And so it's this much about God, it's this much about us, but what it says about us is really important, and we learn a lot about us and who we are and who, what God has created us for and all that sort of, th sort of thing. But that has a couple of very important implications that I want to give right now while we focus on God. The first one is that we represent God and His interests as His image bearers. We're made in His image. And so that means we represent Him, but we are not Him. And that's a very good thing. We are not God, and that's a very good thing. We're going to be drilling down every week into some of the aspects of God that we learn uh, from this passage and we're going to be constantly asking, why is it a good thing that we are not God and God is not like us? The second thing that's really important as we look at God in light of what's coming later is that being God's image bearer speaks to our value and it speaks to our purpose. Uh, but only if God, whose image we bear, is most valuable. 
we have a tendency to domesticate God, to shrink God down, to shape God in our own likeness. Uh, being made in the image of God is not a big deal for a lot of people because God is not a big deal for a lot of people. But the God of the Bible, the God of the first page, is a really, really big deal. Being made as His image means something, and it means something that's really, really great. Some of you remember the song from some years ago uh, called One of Us, and I'm not sure not sure what its message was. I've looked at it over and over trying to figure out exactly what it's trying to say. I think it's what it's, I know what it's trying to say, but I don't want to read too much into it. It does start talking about God being a God of glory and a God who is great and all of that. But at the core of the song is this idea, this question that repeats more than once. And um, Here's, here's what it is, and this might remind you of what it is. What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? Just trying to make his way home, back up to heaven, all alone. Nobody calling on the phone except for the Pope, maybe, in Rome. And there are a lot of people, again, I don't, I don't know what the purpose of that is uh, exactly, but there would be a lot of people that would say, oh, wow, that, I can relate to a God that is a slob like one of us. And if that's the case, then you can make just about anything your God. You can make your kids your God. You can make your dog your God. If you have an impressive mailman, make him your God. Um, because, yeah, you know, if you just want a slob like one of us. And by the way, you have an excuse for being a slob because you're made in the image of him. In fact, you can be an evil slob and feel good about it if that's the God that you're looking for. But the first page of the Bible says that you are made in the image of God and you are not like him and he is not like you. And thank God for that. There are attributes of God, pretty much an endless number of attributes. The theologians talk about maybe 15 to 20 of these attributes. But there are attributes of God that we will never, ever possess. There are attributes that we're supposed to pursue, and there's a bunch that we shouldn't even try to pursue. We should recognize that that is for God, and it's not for us. And people who pursue that are not people that we want to be around or people that we want to be. There are attributes of God that we will never possess. Again, we're going to be looking at five ways that we are not like God and why we should be thankful for that. So let's pray. This prayer of illumination is based on uh, Genesis chapter 1, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. You are God and we are not. Because you are God and because you created everything, we are yours. And everything we have is yours. Yet your generosity is unbounded. You provide our daily bread so that we can focus on you and your kingdom. In your generosity, your son became one of us. And your spirit indwells us. Thank you. And grow us to be more generous with each other in the same way that you are generous with us. 
Father, we continue to pray for the people of Ukraine, for the war that is there, for a peace to come that is just and right. Father, we pray right now for the people of Florida who are, uh, so many of them are suffering uh, greatly and have lost so much. And just think of the implications of that throughout our whole country as that rebuilding needs to happen. Father, we continue to pray for other parts of the world, uh, Puerto Rico and Japan and Canada that have been hit by major storms as well. We pray for their recoveries as well. Lift them up to you. We pray that your people, wherever we are, that we might be able to help in the ways that your people can help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at our, we're going to listen to our scripture being read. You can follow along, but uh, like last week, don't blink. Let's watch. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> All right, we'll continue that theme throughout this series of um, having some of our kids uh, reading our scripture, memorizing our scripture, and reciting it to us. So God is the subject of the first line, the first page, the entirety of his story, which is the Bible. God is the subject. When I say God is the subject, I'm making a grammatical statement. Uh, a very important grammatical statement, and I know by making a grammatical statement and even using the word grammar, some of you are wanting to curl up right now in a fetal position. <laughs> uh, others of you, you've pulled out your red pens, and you're ready. You're ready to go. In fact, you've already corrected all my mistakes on the sermon application guide, and I appreciate that because I'm kind of that way myself. I don't know what my relationship would be to grammar if not for a couple of extended experiences when I was in college and then seminary. And one, one of them was, I think, my freshman or sophomore year, a, a class that I took, an English class, where the professor, I went and looked in my library. This is not the book that I had back then. I bought a new edition several years ago. But the professor had us write a uh, paper every week of a certain length. And we had to use various, we had to use some of the styles, it's called the art of styling sentences, and it gives tw 20 patterns, and you learn grammar as you're doing this. And so I came out of that class uh, really prepared uh, grammatically for writing for, for the rest of my life and for knowing when to use a semicolon and a colon and all that sort of thing. I still misuse them every once in a while, but for the most part, uh, this kind of opened up a, a bunch of stuff for me. That I, uh, that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I certainly didn't get or it didn't stick when I was in high school. And then, uh, as is true with so many people, if you study a language, another language, you learn the grammar of your own language. And so in college studying Greek and then seminary advanced Greek, having to do grammatical sentence diagrams of entire books of the New Testament, uh, did a lot to improve my grammar, my English grammar. So I like grammar. I could spend a lot of time talking about grammar, but I'm not going to. And really, the grammar that you need to know to get what I'm about to say is really simple, probably about, I don't know, third grade, second grade, something like that. So there's no test. You can relax. But God is the subject of the very first sentence. And then of about 34 more sentences... He is the subject on the first page. That's pretty significant. 35, about 35, 34, 35 times. He's 35 times, but I can't remember if one of the times he's not the subject 
Um, yeah, in fact, there is a couple maybe where he's not the subject of it. Uh, but that's a significant number on one page. The verbs are important too. The verbs are very important. So each time God is a the subject, there's a verb. There's an action that follows. Now, there's a question in your sermon application guide that will get you to look in there at all those verbs. And so don't write down what I'm about to show you. You know, discover this for yourself. Circle in your Bibles, you know, this kind of a thing. But just to give you an idea, we have that God creates and God makes. And you have all those different, all those different times. The Spirit of God was hovering, so God hovers. God said, and incredibly, when he says something, like things come into being, things move, mountains move, land moves, water moves, things separate. It's just amazing. He sees, and when he sees, he says it's good. So he can, he, he is the definition of what good is. Um, he separates, he, he separates waters from waters. I mean, the, the, he separates big, 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 gigantic things. He, call, he names things. Uh, he sets things in their place. He blesses, he finishes, and he rests, which we'll, we'll do a whole mini-series on the whole idea of God resting when we get there. So take your time, even if you're not in a small group that uses the sermon application guide or not in a small, one of our small groups, take some time to do question number three. Spend some time meditating on all you learn about God and his vastness his unlimitedness in this, in this chapter. It'll set you up well for the next four weeks. So there's a, a lot of God on this first page. And in verse 1, it says God created. And an interesting thing, I, I, I think I mentioned this in passing last week, every time the word, the Hebrew word create, occurs in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, God is the subject without exception. So there's something about that is being communicated and the idea of creation, all the way from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, that says, this is something only God does. And um, that word occurs 48 times, which isn't a lot for how big the Hebrew Bible is, uh, but the fact that every single time, 48 times, God is the subject, that is very, very significant. So, then you add to this that it's not just when the word is used, but all the concepts that relate to it, the themes that tie themselves to it. So it starts out with God being the subject, create being the verb, and then it tells us all these things that he does. I just listed all those verbs. They're all tied in, hyperlinked to the whole idea of creation. They're all describing what, what that is. And so... Um, there's a lot about God's uniqueness in creation that's very important. And only God has the power or the authority to do what he does in the first page. Only he has the authority to name things. Only he has the authority to call, um, to call things into being and the power to be able to do that. Jen Wilkins, in her book, one of her books on theology of God, compares God's creativity to ours when she says, the extent of our creativity is limited by the simple truth that we are human. Okay, so our creativity is limited. You could even argue that no one has ever drawn breath who is truly creative. And then she goes on to say this. 
We are all hacks, arrangers of someone else's palette of colors, wavelengths, and building blocks. The most creative human you know is a ripoff artist, shamelessly, gleefully rearranging and recombining existing materials into new forms. No one has ever truly created anything, no one that is, except God. God is the subject on the first page, and when he's the subject, all the verbs relate to what he does as a creator um, about things that really what he does are things that only he can do. So whatever exalted ideas we have about ourselves, if you think well of yourself, it should come crashing down in light of this chapter unless your ideas are rooted in who we are because of God. Not the slob-like one of us God, but the God who in so many ways is not like us, not like us at all. Uh, the greatest and most awe-inspiring creations of science, of art, they are at best rip-offs. Now, I'm not even saying that as a criticism. I don't think Jen Wilkins was either. It's not, it's not a criticism. It's, it's just what it is. It's, it's good that we rip off God's stuff and use his stuff and rearrange his stuff. But that's what it is. We're hacks. So that begins to lay the groundwork for what we're going to spend some time looking at as we look at five ways that we are not like God. Thank God that we're not like God. All right. So these are all from the first page. And the first one is this. We are only stewards and God owns it all. It's one of the, one of the core ideas in God being the creator is that that means everything belongs to him. Because God created everything, everything belongs to him. It's an idea that we have to keep returning to and remembering because as we're going to see in a few moments, when we forget, it leads to ruinous ways. We, we, we succeed at ruining our lives when we forget that God owns it all. So let's look at a famous verse in Psalm 50. It's be kind of a fun way of, of exploring this topic a little bit. So in Psalm 50, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. That's God speaking. For every beast in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So let's just explore that for a few moments. Do you think that this poetic verse right here is saying that only the beasts of the field of the forests are his. The beasts of the fields, uh, the, the beasts of the water, the beasts of the air, beasts of the desert, they are not his. It's not saying that, of course. Or only the cattle on a thousand hills, he's probably, it's poetry, so he's probably not being that specific, give or take a hundred hills or so. They're his, and, uh, and the rest belong to other people. It's, it's not... It's not saying that. And interestingly, uh, in, in that day, cattle weren't wild. <laughs> it's not like, let's go hunting for some cattle. Uh, that just, they weren't wild. They were domesticated. That, mean, that means they belonged to someone, and yet he is claiming, nope, they belong to me. How did the creatures of the forest, the cattle on a thousand hills, and all the other creatures, how did they become his? There's four ways something becomes yours. And so, uh, you can buy it, God did not buy them. You can inherit them from someone, God did not inherit it. 
They can be a gift that someone gives to someone. You can own something when someone gives you something. God, nobody gifted these to God. The only other option is this, because God creates everything. Everything belongs to him. That's, that's why it belongs to him. Here's another important question that we think we know, but we need to review. We need to keep reviewing uh, in our lives. It has to do with pronouns. If God declares something to be mine, has he transferred ownership to me? Okay, so he may, he may speak, not directly, but indirectly, uh, your wife, and I, I hear that as my wife, my house, and the Bible speaks in that way, and God speaks in that way, uh, is it mean somewhere along the line that was transferred to me? in some way. This house was transferred from God as owner to me. He, he transferred the ownership. Those are important pronouns. Mine, my, yours, yours. I don't think any of us would think that he no longer owns it, and now it's ours and no longer his, even though he speaks of it as ours. I don't think we think that. I think we, we understand naturally what it's trying to say. It's talking about my house in the same way as I give the illustration quite often that uh, we, you know, when you were growing up in your parents' home, they talked about your room, even if you shared it with someone else. It was your room, your brother's room, your sister's room, that kind of thing. It's your room. And uh, it never was really yours. And if your parents in some moment of insanity said something like, it really is yours, you can do whatever you want with it. Um, if you're, it, it, right now, if you're living in your parents' home and your parents have said that, start taking pieces of the drywall out and see what they, see if that sticks. I just wanted to see what's behind it. I don't think in the history of the world, when someone has moved out as an adult, the parents paid them to be able to now take ownership back of that room and turn it into a guest room. And if it's ever happened in the history of the world, that person should be imprisoned who did it. <laughs> Just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So um, everything that is ours is God's, and it's only ours to use and to manage. And so the Bible uses a word, or we use a word called stewardship to talk about that. And it's ours to manage in a way that meets God's approval, furthers his purposes, brings glory to him, glory to him in the way that we use it. All right, that's, that's everything. God's ownership and our role as stewards, managers, is hard to learn. Really, really hard to learn. I mean, it's like we don't really move well beyond that, you know, three-year-old who is, this is my toy. <laughs> and doesn't want to share it with someone else. We're, we're more sophisticated versions of that most of the time, at least in the back of our minds, even if we can articulate something different. So um, we, we have trouble learning it, and even when we learn it, it's hard to remember that we are not the owners. God's ownership, God is the owner, we are the stewards. I want you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Daniel. If you, it's in the Old Testament. You can look at the table of contents to find where it is, or 
Just go past the big prophets and it's the it's, uh, big books. It's the one after that. So in Daniel chapter 4, tells a story about how Daniel, who is in exile in Babylon and working for the Babylonian king, Babylonian king has, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He wants an interpretation, eventually gets to Daniel and asks him to interpret it. And Daniel interprets it for him. And then we're going to pick up in verse 28 where what the dream foretold actually takes place. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? There's those pronouns. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came down from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from the people, from people, and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, from people, and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the, time, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is the eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time uh, that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I restored my, I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything He does is right and all His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. Now here's um, something that Jen Wilkins in that book on God says that is really, really good. She says, for many years... I thought this story in Daniel 4 was telling us that God punished Nebuchadnezzar's pride by turning him over to insanity. But I see now that by stripping away his power and authority, God merely revealed the insanity that already operated behind Nebuchadnezzar's creator complex. It is sheer wild-eyed grass-eating madness to ascribe to ourselves the role of creator. But we do it all the time. Abraham Kuyper said something that you maybe have heard quoted uh, more than once. It's famous for this. There is none, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's a good thing. We'll, we'll talk about that in a few moments. It's a good thing that he says, mine. 
So if you have kids, do you ever look at your kids and cry, mine, maybe not with your words, but with your actions and your attitudes? The Bible considers that wild-eyed, grass-eating madness. Do you look at your home if you own a house and cry, mine, by your actions or your attitudes? The Bible considers that wild-eyed, grass-eating madness. You look at your stuff and cry, mine, by your actions and your attitudes. The Bible considers that grass-eating, wild-eyed madness. Do you look at your money, your time, your talents, your skills, your career, your position? Like, I have achieved this. Even your ministry and cry, mine, by your actions and attitudes. The Bible considers that wild-eyed, grass-eating madness. It'd be good for us to learn that before we're wild-eyed, grass-eating, mad people. It would be good to learn that. So the first way that we are not like God is that we are only stewards and God owns it all. Why should we be thankful for that? Why thank God we are not owners? Wouldn't it be great to be owners of everything that he has entrusted to our care, that he not only entrusted it to us, but he would say, no, it is completely yours. No strings attached. I have nothing to do with this anymore. It's all yours. Transfer of ownership. Well, let's ask a few questions. If that were to happen, what more would you truly have if what is yours is ultimately yours? What more would you truly have? One of the amazing things about the first page of the Bible is that when God creates humanity, he doesn't really hold anything back from from, from them. He hands over things all the time. Here's what it says in Genesis 1, 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed on its fruit. You shall have them for food. He hands, he hands it over. He's concerned about providing for our sustenance. But it's even, even more than that. Uh, this, this runs through the whole Bible as a theme, but it's, it's explicitly stated in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So Paul is talking to uh, rich people, which means, you know, people who own a home and a car and things like that. It's for the rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty and prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he's not only concerned with our sustenance, he's concerned with our enjoyment. And you see this running throughout the whole Bible. So I ask, what more would you truly have if what you have is ultimately yours? Um, Anything you've been entrusted with is for your sustenance and enjoyment. God says, this is for your enjoyment. So what what more would you have if God didn't own it? You might have more of it. You might have more of it. There are people that you know that have more than you because they think it's ultimately theirs. And so even though just economically you're kind of in the same place, they have a lot more than you because they think it's ultimately theirs. Because God has a way of looking at his people and saying, I have entrusted this to you, and it's not just for you. 
it's, I, I'm calling you to be generous with it. And so we might think that we would have more for what I want, for my family, to be able to get ahead, to thrive in ways that I want them to thrive if I just owned it all and I could just keep it all to myself. But God would say that if you think that you, what you have is yours and you ignore his call to stewardship, eventually what you will have is heartache. Eventually what you'll have is disaster. So right before that passage in 1 Timothy, where God is saying that, that rich people, listen, don't be prideful. God has given you what you have for you to enjoy he talks about money, and specifically money, you know, can be representative. It's talking about money, but it, it represents all the stuff that we think is ours. And here's, here's what he says to, uh, here's what Paul says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And if we have food, but if we have food and clothing with those, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, it's a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, this is the famous passage, notice what it actually says, not what people say it says. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So if you think it's all mine and I don't steward it for God's purposes, I may have more of it, but I also am going to have a lot of pain because when that happens, it it has a tendency, Jesus taught on this a lot, it has a tendency to become our God. And it's a horrible God. It's not a good God. It's a, it's a God that just is constantly going to, to our greed that, that's like an acid in our lives and spills out like acid on other people's lives. And um, there's all kinds of passages that make clear that money will let us down. Jesus said this all the time. It will let you down. It's powerless. Trust in God. He is all-powerful. Don't trust in money. It will eventually let you down. And then let's just look, one last thing. Look at the ethic that says what's mine is mine. If the ethic is that what's mine is mine to do with as I want, without regard for God or others, and God shared that ethic. Okay, if God also thought, what's mine is mine, remember he's creator, and I don't need to share it with anybody, what would you have? Here's a, a little Spanish lesson. Nada. <laughs> That's what you have. That's what you have. I think you know what that means. Nada. But what does God freely give us? In addition to breath, to his creation, to the resources that we have in our lives, what does he give us? He gives us himself. That's a, that's a God 
worthy of following. That's a God worthy of worship. That's a God worthy of depending on. That's a good God. One we can trust. Let's take out our communion packets, if you would. Take the bread. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and we gave it thanks. He broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we are so thankful that you are such a generous God. You create this earth and you give it to us to enjoy, to produce, to create cultures, families, cities, but to do it in a way that brings glory to you. Father, we, we want to bring glory to you with what we have. Help, help us, remind us. Remind us of your generous ownership. Father, um, we, uh, we see so many needs around us. Help us to reach out to people in need with the truth of your grace, your generous grace, but also with our hands, our feet, our wallets. Help us to be people that bring glory to you in that way too. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.